Welcome to Week Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies, and we're celebrating our 16th year on the air. We're happy to report that we are now on NPR One, and that gives us, um, well, we had a national audience online, but now uh, it's on the NPR One website, which means a lot of folks uh, can now tune in and hear what's happening in Erie, Pennsylvania. But it also gives us an opportunity to interview folks that are of national interest, and I can't think of a more prevalent person in my mind than Dr. David Frew. And welcome. <laughs> welcome to the, the station. Thank you, Tom. Okay, so let's ask a more personal question to start out. What are you doing now? You're retired, right? Well, no, I'm not, not good. Really. I'm not good at retiring. Yeah. I still have some clients uh, from my consulting business in the old days, yes. trying to help them. Yes. And I'm doing a lot more writing than I ever did before. And uh, David is a prolific writer. Can you describe some of your books? Uh, what are your favorite books that you've written? Well, I started out writing uh, uh, academic boring stuff. Oh. I had a couple of uh, what you'd consider to be uh, I- industry books, self-help kind of books. And uh, then we did textbooks. My wife and I uh, co-authored a series of textbooks. And uh, then I did a couple more of those kind of trade, trade books. And uh, just by happen chance, ended up writing a book on Lake Erie shipwrecks. About 25 years ago, and that that blew up. Uh, so uh, now, what's the most fun for me is writing about uh, ships, shipping. No, that book was very shipwrecks. popular. You said it was it blew up. You mean in a good way? It exploded. It was something. an enormous bestseller. It was yeah. just unbelievable. It, we, it yeah. had to be reprinted. It was just uh, it was a fantastic. That put you on the national scene to some degree, I believe. Yes, it a did. A lot of folks loved that book. International scene. International. It was, it was yeah. half Canadian. That's right. You, um, if I recall correctly, had a partnership. Yeah, my co-author was a Canadian guy. And you uh, would travel up there or they would uh, reciprocate with you? Well, I I fell in love with Port Dover years and years and years ago. It's sort of my second home. Still go there a lot. Yeah. That's quite an interesting place to be for folks who've never visited. It's a good place to go visit, right? It is. Not many people live there, though. Uh, No, it's a small town. But it has a big influx of folks at a certain time of year? I thought there was a big event that goes on up uh, there. The, the Harley-Davidson Friday the 13th uh, motorcycle ride-in is unbelievable. Uh, they'll get, most times, forty or 50,000 uh, people so they come go into from, the town. So they go from 4,500 or 9,500, some that number many. like that, not to that uh, 50,000. Oh, not even. Oh, no, no. no it's, we're, we're talking maybe 1,800 people. Eight, it, that live there. That live there. It's the size of Edinburgh. Oh, my gosh. And suddenly, where do you put 50,000 people? Everywhere. Everywhere. And there's no place for them to stay overnight. But Port Dover has a good feeling for you because it's part of your um, your document documentation of the story of Lake Erie. And, it's, and also, it's a family connection for me. My, my, oh. my kids and I went there many times a year for years, for decades. So, yeah, uh, I, I, having grown up in Buffalo, a lot of Buffalonians like to Traverse the North Shore of, yes, they of do. Lake Erie, and and that had a lot of historical value for you as well. It yes, enabled you to do some extra research. Yeah, and I became good friends with the the fellow, the very talented fellow that ran the museum there. There's a really terrific museum, oh. the Port Dover Harbor Museum. Okay, and uh, we became great friends. And uh, during my time running the historical society in Erie, yes, and having a museum to putz around with, yeah, uh, he and I used to do. Uh, uh, exhibits together. We'd open it up at his place and move it to my place or vice versa. Uh, boy, talk about Canadian-American relations being embellished. What a great project that was. It was fun. Yeah. And so the book, the, your your bestseller, how did that all end up? It still sells? 
Uh, you know, I was working for the Canadian government at the time. I oh. had a, I had a Canadian studies program going at Gannon. Oh. And uh, they were after me to write. And they were more interested in me writing stuff that would be popular than stuff that was uh, published in refereed journals. And so I hooked up with this fellow on the other shore who was a... Uh, who was a shipwreck guy and a, and a shipwreck aficionado, very low tech, no tech at all, actually. Really? And uh, he wasn't a very good writer either. He had written a book, but he was an awful writer, actually, and he hated the process of writing. So we used his uh, skills and his uh, experience and my writing ability, and I, I brought some science to the project, and we put together what, what at the time was a very high-tech uh, piece of work. That's wonderful. Now, you have a big project right now. What's your big project today? I do. I'm in the midst of writing the, the definitive and extensive history of Presque Isle uh, before and after it became a state park. And I'm, the, the, the manuscript we have has almost 300 pages of text without pictures, and there'll be lots of pictures. So this has blown up into a monstrous project. Forgive me, I'm not allowed to be promotional, but I've got to say there's been a lot of stories told about Prescott, but I'm not sure anybody's really gone in depth to the to the real story behind. That's cor- that's correct, Tom. And not yeah. only that, loads of the stories that have been told about Prescott are, are wrong. They're flat, well, they're, they're flat out wrong. Uh, fairy tales. Well, they're not fairy tales. They're urban tales. Urban tales uh, yeah. that that have no uh, basis. My favorite is that uh, all the people that were buried in Graveyard Pond. As it turns out, if you assemble all the charts, the the official nautical charts that hold the Presque Isle's uh, footprint in them, uh, Graveyard Pond wasn't called Graveyard Pond until uh, the early 1900s after there was a bunch of uh, abandoned derelict ships out there, which is why they called it Graveyard Pond. That's the real reason. had nothing to do with uh, well, my, sailors from the War of 1812. My favorite map is the one that shows all the shipwrecks in uh, Lake Erie, which you can buy at the um, library and some other I retail believe, places. I believe that would be my map that I did. Well, lesson, <laughs> lesson learned, and we look from Look for my name. And, the, and you did that. Well, uh, Dave Stone has one that covers from the north side of the lake uh, his way. And mine covers from the center of the lake to Erie. That had to have been an overwhelming project. How do you get? How did you manage to get all that information? The scientific way to do it is to go to Lloyd's of London, uh, that charted all the all the shipwrecks. They, they were in charge of of wrecks everywhere, including right. in the Great Lakes. And that their oh. interest in the Great Lakes was that the trade route from Buffalo to Detroit. Uh, was the busiest trade route in the world Yes, uh, during the time just before and just after the Civil War. So yes. they shift, they entirely shifted uh, their business model uh, to be focused on Lake Erie. In fact, they moved, uh, their busiest office was in Cleveland. Now, people don't understand it. Lloyd's is the company that insures things that are uninsurable, but they do it in a very financially sound way. Lloyd's is not an insurance company. I think it's like a co-op of some sort. But they'll put the money up to protect a wreck. Or excuse me, to protect a ship. Yes. And they will make money on this. But ships sink, sure. as in the case of what you know and what your map has shown, to the thousands, right? Am I right? Yes. Yeah, you are. Amazing. So how did you manage to get that information? It's, it's easy. You just go to Lloyd's and say, may I please? You did say that. May I please go to your files? And they, and said, they said, okay. Sure, we'd love you to do that. 
And out of that came um, just the chart itself, or was there a publication with it? Well, that was part of what we did when we with did the, the, the book. With the book. And, so. uh, you know, sadly or, or not so sadly, Dave Stone did his from newspaper accounts of shipwrecks, oh. which are all over the place. You can, you can find five or six totally different versions of shipwrecks. And uh, having said that, sometimes his shipwreck locations were better than mine because of the fact that people sometimes misreported where their ships wrecked. So just because oh. Lloyd's uh, imagined that it was in a particular spot, that doesn't mean it was there. These days, uh, all, all of the work we did was rendered silly uh, by, by the modern Internet because shipwreck people who now like to be famous for discovering shipwrecks will readily put the, put the GPS locations, which are very accurate, uh, right online. Forgive me. So they'll go out, explore the lake or whatever wreck they are looking for, and actually mark it with GPS. Yeah, well, yeah. Right, yeah, my yeah. Guess. yeah, they make a waypoint. And the value to them is this is... Other, others can go there. And, of and, course, uh, there's a big uh, tourist industry or research industry for and, going and, and, in. I know. think there's more fun for me knowing the story uh, oh. than diving down in the murky water and seeing the wreck, especially since the controversy of the Atlantic, which went down in 1852, halfway between Erie and Long Point, yes. closer to Long Point, actually. And as a result of that wreck, you're now not allowed to touch with your finger an underwater wreck. In it's, Lake it's Erie, and that's governed by the United States and Canada? Both, yes. Both. So by, this by is both. a universal... It's a universal rule. Now, having, having said that, let's say you and I swim down and see a wreck, and you and I touch it, are we going to get caught? Well, you know, I'll squeal on you, and you'll and squeal on sure. me. Right, yeah. yeah no, we, but in the, in the old days, in the old Wild West days, and this yeah. is part of Dave Stone's... Uh, uh, experience. Yeah, people would find a wreck and they would go down with crowbars and stuff, and they would rip it to shreds and take the pieces, and uh, put the pieces on their mantle places. Uh, sometimes not yeah. well preserved, and they would just rot. Then those people would pass away, and their kids would walk in their house and say, "What is this junk?" And throw it away. And throw it in a dumpster. And there, there probably were other things inside these ships that were. Sometimes the best stuff was inside the ships. In fact, the treasure in ships right now is it was not unusual to carry big loads of hardwood across the lakes, milled hardwood. And if a ship went down with milled hardwood, uh, the hardwood may be in better shape now than it was when it was milled. Even though it was at the bottom of the lake for all At the bottom time. of the lake forever. It preserved it to some degree. So that has a – is that – I thought wood floats. Uh, not, no. if, not if it's inside a boat and it's below uh, 50 or 60 feet. It sits. Yeah, the technology or the the physics of it keeps the boat down. Okay, wow. I'm, I'm gathering way too much information here in a short period of time. So what caused so, you to be interested in all these wrecks? What provoked you in the first place? If you I you know, I, I, was, I was in Port Rowan, which is where Dave Stone lives. It's mm -hmm. a little bit uh, west of Port Dover mm -hmm. with my children uh, staying on a sailboat. We used to go off. We'd spend a month a year sailing around in, in Lake Erie, sometimes not getting much further than just across the lake. And my son came, I gave all my kids 20 bucks and said, here, have fun. My son came running back to wherever we were with a copy of Dave Stone's shipwreck map. So you've seen those two maps. Yeah. My, I just copied his. 
And he said, oh, my gosh, did you know this? And then a few days later, Dave Stone was giving a slideshow at the uh, provincial park there at Long Point. Yeah. So we went and we listened to him. And I started talking to him. And the next thing you know, we became fast friends and we were writing books together. Um, if I could ask, Dr. Fru, how many books do you have? How many? Are you, or you've lost count. It's north of 40. All on Lake Erie, oh, no, or, no. Di or different. Well, no. you're a historian, so you're... I'm not. I'm not a historian. No, uh, actually, you're... I started out as an engineer, and then I shifted to organizational psychology. So, if you would read the criticisms of my books, somebody would say this isn't a historian. This is some sort of a, a psychologist uh, trying to apply modern organizational principles of psychology to shipping and shipwrecks, and they got me there. Well, I apologize for the. Historian nomenclature. Well, it's but. okay. It's 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 a it's an honor t for people to think that I'm a historian because I, I really do like history. So you're a researcher. You you you're the epitome of uh, someone who understands exactly what's going. Or you try to understand exactly what happened. I I pride myself, uh, and if I took anything away from my graduate work, my doctorate and postdoctorate, it was learning how to learn. So uh, I think that as 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 this goes, and without straying into the areas of high-tech stuff that I don't know enough about, yeah. I can learn stuff. Uh, you can pick it up, and then you supplement your writing with all of this. Yeah, and I'm, I'm uh, as you know, my my old engineering math skills help me to read the journal stuff that is would be daunting. So I might be able to read stuff that that historians would have a hard time with. And and. Uh, but my, of course, my deficit is I don't have the contextual understanding of a historian. I remember Bill Garvey, who used to always yeah. compliment my abilities. Uh, he said that I made a terrible, uh, terrible mistake career-wise by not going into history. Of course, I told him that I wanted to be able to make a living and raise my family yeah. intelligently. And uh, Bill, Bill Garvey, uh, you know, bless his soul, uh, could rattle off the years and dates oh. of emperors and presidents and European conflicts, yeah. and yeah. I, don't, I don't have those skills. So of all the stories that you saved up, garnered, um, journaled, what's your favorite one? Gee whiz. I think I think my best book of all times, which n not everybody would agree with, is a book called Long Gone, which is the story of the Marquette and Bessemer that set out from Conneaut, Ohio, uh, with a load of coal cars, railroad cars. There, there's no coal in Ontario. So to get coal, they would uh, send it in railroad cars from uh, West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania to Conneaut. And then they would roll those uh, railroad cars onto what they'd call a car ferry, because a car ferry was invented before cars. That's exactly right. There were four sets of tracks, and they would put 32 uh, cars on there, and they'd send the cars across the lake. They'd unpeel the cars, take them to wherever coal was needed, and then they'd put empties on and bring the empties back. And this, I think, didn't Andrew Carnegie decide he was going to build a steel mill or tried to build a steel mill right where that was happening? Not only is he going to build one there, but he was going to build one here. He came and made a bid on Presque Isle in the 1800s. That's right. And That's it, was re right. it was rejected. So we would have been uh, a steel town in more than one way, and uh, would have Conneaut been, would have been a steel mill town. Would have been well. awful. 
Yeah, and he he that. decided when he came here that this town was owned and operated by a small group of, of folks that were protecting themselves from invasion from the outside, and that would have been well, that uh, rumor keeps uh, exaggerating the Reeds, itself. Yeah, the Reeds and the Scots, yeah, uh, and the Tracys and all those guys. Yeah, uh, they didn't want Carnegie here, and Carnegie just decided to be easier to go to a place which was totally undeveloped, Conneaut. Yes. And almost as good as being in Erie, maybe in some ways better because it was closer to the he center of the He built the lake. rail line, didn't he? Didn't he get it as yes. far as building the rail line? Up? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He did. He did. And uh, is that in any of your stories? That yes. seems to be of interest to you. Yeah. Yeah. So we but, avoided uh, the steel crunch eventually. <laughs> yeah, I think, think we're happy that that didn't happen. And we preserved one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. On the planet. Yeah. I don't think people realize how wonderful that is. They do not. Now, if I could ask you, on the other side, we have Long Point, And I understand Long Point is not publicly owned. Long Point was uh, purchased just after the Civil War by 20 people. Civil War. Okay. I thought it was after the later wars. Okay. No. And... Uh, do they still own the... Yes, the, the 20 people still own it. 10 Americans and 10 Canadians. called. Oh, the Long, Americans are involved in that. Well, they did it on purpose. Uh, the, yeah. there, there was a problem there, and the problem was that uh, land-based pirates uh, were luring ships and making them go aground. And when they'd lure a ship so that it would run aground, they would run out and steal the cargo. And the sailors on the ships didn't want to have anything to do with fighting. They weren't making enough money to make it worthwhile. Yeah. So they and would Lake Erie is treacherous enough on its own. Treacherous. And if you take that, uh, that trade route that goes from uh, Buffalo to Detroit, yes. it comes within a mile uh, of the tip of Long Point. So Long Point is an obstacle to, to, uh, uh, to navigation on that route, especially it was an obstacle before. Well, you physically have been to Long Point, so have I. It's protected. It's well protected. It's you protected, can't go but too far out. So one of my favorite parts of my my relationship with Dave Stone is that he had an anthropologic permit, so he could go there. So he and I used to have our way at Long Point. We were out there several times a year, just did walking. Did you uh, walk out, travel out, or did you boat out? How did? Well, you can't walk out. It's too far. I mean, you could. It's twenty miles. That would be a, quite a hike. Yeah. We used to use his boat to get there. And you had the permit, so to speak. The we had a permit. permit to do yeah. that. And yeah. when somebody encountered us and said, "What are you guys doing?" we would smile, and they all, they all knew Dave anyhow. Yeah. So oh. we, we were we were we were okay there. And uh, uh, out of that story, and I don't mean to distract you, did, did you see anything out there that was a biological? You know, it's like the southern coast of Cuba is, is full of environmental, beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's like if you could imagine Presque Isle and nobody's allowed to go there. That's and what it's, it's protected. Totally yeah. protected. And then, of course, Long Point's totally owned by these 20, 20 well, guys. From Civil War to today, was it passed down through the families? Or? Uh, if you die and you're one of the owners, yeah, uh, the uh, the rest of the folks meet. They have a committee and decide who could take your place, but you lose your share. That's like um, those boathouses at Presque Isle. No. If you lose your house, you're... No, that's, that's, that's changed. That's a rumor. Oh, my God, that's changed. That's changed. Okay, so you... No, the, the way Long Point works is yeah. uh, you have a share. You have one twentieth share. And if you have a share, you'll have a house out there. Oh, you Long do Point. have a get to have a residence. 
So yeah, that, yeah. Oh, I didn't know a, that. I thought yeah. it was totally protected. The Long Point Club uh, is, and of course, if they owned it, they could do whatever they wanted. At the base of Long Point, mm-hmm. uh, there's the, the equivalent of a, of a Long Island uh, duck hunting association there. That's how they function. So they have a club, and the club has a main house for cooking for everybody, and they have bunk houses for the people that work out there. There's a full-time staff. And every owner, uh, every one of the 20-member owners, has his or her own, it's always his, has his own uh, place to go, and whenever he wants, can go there. What what an enclave. It's quite amazing. But only Americans and Canadians. There's no Ten of each. Ten of each, and it's 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 chartered that way. So, if one of the one of the people dies or decides he doesn't want to or can't do it anymore, uh, the replacement is whatever nationality he was, and uh, somehow they know who wants to be a part of it. And in recent years, I think the share value is something like uh, I don't know six million dollars U.S. Yeah, so probably this is, it's priceless. Actually, these these are yeah. exclusive uh, folks, and these are folks from. Well, we might even know their names. Who knows? Yeah, I we, don't know if that list is published. We, we would know their names. You can get there. You can get there. You names. can get it. It's okay, easy. that's a that's a story for another day. But David, talking about you, you handed me um, an outline, and you named it some eerie stories. And I said some. There's 46 topics already uh, on this list, which is going to be part of the new book you're producing. Well, I think I might have labeled that some Presque Isle stories. I, that's what oh, I was thinking. Me. I did it, yeah. but maybe I didn't. No, my my fault. Yeah, it's some eerie. But we, so my my favorite project. We knew what you meant. You my meant it, my yeah. favorite project, you know, probably is always the one I'm in the middle of. <laughs> okay. And so right now, my favorite project is the Presque Isle project, and I'm I'm you know more than two years into writing probably the most comprehensive thing that's ever been written about Presque Isle. And this will be all print, but it could end up being multimedia too. I, just... I suppose anything could happen, but we're shooting for yeah. uh, uh, 20, 2021 is the 100th anniversary of the park. So this would qualify as, as a, a park. textbook. 2021, okay. Yes. This would qualify as a textbook probably. Well, I don't know who would use a textbook uh, on this, but this is completely comprehensive. It goes from geology and sand spit succession uh, through the early abuses of the place, uh, who owned it and who didn't own it, and the fights to make it into a federal and then a state park, and uh, the modern problems of high water. Yeah. Oh, can we talk about, do you mind talking about that for a couple of minutes? Now, though, we, we note that we, the we water is pretty high. That. The uh, water is very high. And uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen it that high, if you, ever. You've never seen it this high. Okay, so that's that's correct information that's correct and your thoughts on that what what is that uh how does that impact the park well if you go out to the park uh we drove my wife and i go out to the park essentially every day we're well it's a rare day that we're not out there a couple days ago we went out there let me think of what day that was maybe monday and we weren't allowed out the park was closed did they oh i didn't notice high wind and high water damage yeah i thought it was the wind but yeah well trees go down and then the water blows over. So and the speak. water blows over. I remember seeing maps where the, the peninsula was washed away in spots. Are we close to that again somehow? Or Well, you're probably thinking that there used to be a channel through the yeah. West End. Yeah. In okay. fact, from, from the moment that the Corps of Engineers started studying Presque Isle, technically, until now, there was a channel through the neck of the peninsula for about uh, 60% of the time. Hmm. So the natural proclivity of the park, the, the, that sand spit, is to have a channel uh, through the base. 
Right. And, and that channels, was never bridged. It was it a was, natural. It was uh, never bridged. Yeah. It was uh, one of the reasons why the Corps of Engineers decided to go ahead and, and uh, create the East Channel, which they were against. Uh, the reeds, oh, the okay. reeds wanted the, when the, when the reeds were anticipating uh, having a big shipping empire, which they had here. And what year would that be? Uh, Forgive me. Eighteen thirties and forties, okay, pre Civil War. Yeah. And uh, they also anticipated the creation of a canal from Erie to Pittsburgh. Right. Uh, they were keen on getting the federal and the state governments to do all the infrastructure work for them, so they wouldn't have to pay for it. They were smart that way. Yeah. And they went to the Corps of Engineers, which was uh, not as sophisticated as they are now. They could not dredge in those days. They right. Could, they could scrape. But okay. the Corps of Engineers was developed as a West Point uh, artery uh, to help uh, on the battlefield to create forts and barriers to protect the people that were fighting. And the other stuff that they started to do in peacetime, stuff that we think of them now, dredging and keeping canals open. Mm -hmm. That's something that they came to later. So the Reeds got the Corps to come here, and they said, we wanted to, we have to have a channel into our harbor. And they said, well, why not just put it where it already is on the west side? Oh, okay. And the Reeds, yeah. at, at, at best, there was a 50-feet deep, 100-foot-wide channel, perfectly navigable through the west arm of, the, of Presque Isle. That was the best of the channels. There were several different ones. And episodically, when the water would go up, the channel would get bigger. When the water would go down, the uh -huh. water, uh, the channel would sometimes just disappear. And the Corps of Engineers uh, said, no, 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 we, we want to put it on the west, not on the east. The reeds were east-centric. As you remember, they were looking at the trade route from Buffalo to yes. Detroit thinking if somebody from Buffalo is heading for Detroit, mm -hmm. if they get all the way past Presque Isle, they're not going to go through that western channel, turn around and come back up, especially if they're in a sailing ship. That's right. Yep. So uh, we want the channel on the east side. And they fought, and they fought, and they fought. And what finally turned the Corps of Engineers around was when there was so much traffic going through that channel uh, that the shipping people were demanding either a light ship or a lighthouse to be put there. And they decided it would be cheaper to try to seal that up and put the channel where it is now. Fabulous story. Good story. These are great stories. Now, I, I have 46 topics I could touch on with you here. <laughs> let's, let's start with an overview of the Prescott yeah, Project. And I, well, I was teasing that there's no way. And, and I, I, I immediately wanted to grab onto 10 of these because these are excellent stories. But, yes, let's talk about the, the project that you're doing. Talk about the overview. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were in the midst of a crime spree. We were in our Mini Cooper convertible with the top down, parked illegally after dark in the second parking lot with our binoculars and our cameras, waiting for the hunter's moon to rise over the city. Oh, That's man. the full moon that comes up in October. Right. Uh, and if you know, if you if you're on the, in the if you're in the midst of a crime spree like my wife and I in a car. <laughs> that's less than innocuous, uh, you'll pretty soon be, be warned. You can't do this. You have to leave. Keep it moving. Yes. But there were so many people parked waiting for that moon to come up that night that we got away with it. Okay. And the moon came up, and we're sitting watching. And as the moon is coming up, Marianne, who is my co-author yes. on lots of books. Oh, wonderful. And a great colleague, other than being you know the person that I've loved for 54 years and lived with, 
uh, said to me, okay, I know you. You just finished your last book. Uh, what are you thinking about writing next? And I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing something on Presque Isle, which is meaningful to us because we go there all the time. Actually, we met there. We met there in 1959 oh, wow. <laughs> when I went to Beach Six and, and ran into Annette Funicello, uh, you know, Whoa. on the beach. That would be my wife. Okay. Huge, the Annette Funicello lookalike. Yeah. And Won uh, the contest, right? we, we sat there watching that moon come up, and by the time it was up, we had sort of uh, put together in our heads what this project would be. It would be the complete story of Presque Isle. And my wife, who is pretty much the namer of all my books, I'm better at writing books than naming a book. I might have called this book A Book About the Peninsula. (laughs) (laughs) Why wouldn't that work? Well, it it probably would, but the marketing folks would probably... uh, Marianne, uh, who has a better feel for that sort of thing than I, said, no, 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 your title is Accidental Paradise. For that is the... It's the title of this project. That's wonderful. Accidental Paradise, because of the fact that it's only by an accident, really, that that place is here and that we still have it, that Andrew Carnegie didn't buy it and, and put we didn't put condos out there and destroy it some way commercially. Um, with all that, the uh, peninsula is protected or maybe protected by these stone walls. And I don't want to, this is not a controversial question. Um, well, it is a controversial question because there were lots of people hated those things. Well, I, I believe they were done to preserve the peninsula, but then I look at Long Point and I say, wow, the transitions over the years is a benefit to the environment. And this, I don't know. How does, how, well, is that in your history someplace? Yes, of course it is. Okay. I, I, that Long, was, uh, Long I was going to ask if the question. Uh, Long Point being way larger than the Presque Isle doesn't need those. Okay, it's the size of it and the where it is. size of it protects it yeah. in a way that Presque Isle can't. If Pres- if the sand from Presque Isle washes uh, to the east of Presque Isle, which it's that's what it does. That's what it does. Sand yeah. goes from the it's from like the west end of the lake goes on, to the yeah. east end of the lake. You can watch it in yeah. satellite photographs. Once it yeah. goes into solution in the water and it gets past Presque Isle, it's gone. Can't be retrieved. Okay, so the preservation has a value, obviously, for economic reasons. How about environmentally? Uh, it's a it's an enormously important flyway uh, for birds. Oh, I never thought of that. It's uh, one we of, all look down, we never look up. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the most important bird sanctuaries we have, and the birds don't like flying over open water. So if a bird is trying to get, there's three major flyways. You need an ornithologist to speak knowledgeably about this. But yeah. well, there are three major, yeah. three major flyways in the United States. Uh, we're in the middle of one of them. And all the birds that are trying to avoid that frightening overwater transit uh, come and rest up on Presque Isle. And then they go to Long Point. All yeah. they have to do is make that 20, okay, so 20, 26 mile. So from one point of view, the protection of the peninsula birds. is important for from a bigger ecological point yeah, of view. Yeah, and it yeah. protects the harbor. The reason the Corps of Engineers came here uh, to uh, cooperate was they could see the economic value of the harbor, especially back when, Our shipping, harbor, yeah, yeah. when shipping was bigger yeah. than it is now. Uh, uh, I've seen um, videos. In fact, uh, WQLN produced one years ago with a number of people that would go out just to picnic and tourist and hot dog stands and boats and hundreds of boats anchored in the little bays there. And I don't think you see that now. Well, you do, yeah. Do you, you that many? See it. The well, same amount? A couple years ago, we had any neighborhood of 4 million people showing up. At the peninsula At the for peninsula. recreational purposes. We don't know why they're there. 
You know, we know that number because we have the, we have the technology that, that counts axles. That counts the cars, yeah. Oh, yeah. We don't know how many of them are me going out there a couple times a day. Okay, so let's let's say it's 3 million, just pretend. Or it's 4 million. Well, it is 4 million, four but million. how many of the 4 million are crazy people like me that live here and just go out there because we like it and we want to go for a walk? Or Yeah. But still, that's in, when you think about 4 million people. Yeah, you should be able to do something with that. It, it's staggering to— um, What if we charged everybody a nickel? Yeah. Well, you'd have. To, well, now that you can scan cars as they go by, they to be uh, made to stop. But he wanted to put a toll there. So I'm not stopping. <laughs> well, the problem with the toll is it would. How would you? How would you? Uh, how would you first manage? First of all, there'd be a major objection to it. Yeah. They don't have the horsepower to. to no, manage it. it's like the New York State Thruway. Now you get a little mechanism to put in your windshield and yeah. scan you as you go by, and that's a nickel. But, uh, whoa! There you go. No one would. No one complained about having a through a uh, device and putting the sensor and charging Maybe, you a nickel. Or paying a one-year fee or whatever. Or a one-year fee. I don't but, know. But the, well, it's hard to tell. So what what are your thoughts on that? You wouldn't be able to charge to get on, could you? On paying people to go on to Presque Isle? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite models for this, there are other peninsulas of that type. Oh, yeah. Sandspit uh, peninsulas. Yeah. Uh, succession bonded, and we could talk about that later, on Lake Erie. And my favorite of them is Peely on the Canadian side, which is uh, sort of across uh, on the Canadian side from the islands that stretch from Sandusky. And at Peely, uh, you drive about uh, one and a half miles onto the peninsula, and you park in a giant parking area, and then that's it. If you want to go the rest of the way out, you can walk, you can ride your bicycle, or you could take a tram that they provide. That's the way to do and it. And they have a box there that says, please uh, donate if you're having a good time. David, this is a part of my job I hate. We're out of time. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> and the value of this, so if you would, can we um, add a couple more half hours to this series and sure invite you back? And I think it might take longer than that because we want to cover all these 46, at least what you think is important, and I know they all are. We, we hope that you would come back and continue this saga. This is fascinating. Everything is critical. And remember, I'm a university professor that taught graduate classes that were three hours long. <laughs> so you don't want to invite me anywhere. Uh, no, we're going to invite you back. We guarantee <laughs> that we're going to hit this topic several times again. Um, we want to remind folks, this is We Question and Learn, our guest, Dr. David Frew, who will come back and talk more. He just touched the uh, tip of the icebergs. And we'll talk about ice as well, I'm sure. We could talk in about one of ice. your stories. And uh, we'd like to announce um, in the last month or two, we've been on, uh, we are on NPR One. So, David, your reach will be a little larger than just wonderful Northwest Pennsylvania. And we want to thank you for being here. Thank, thank you, you, Tom. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. I'm Michelle Martin. These days it seems like just about everybody is choosing sides and doubling down on talking points. Here at NPR, we try to cut through the noise with meaningful and respectful discussions with people from all perspectives, backgrounds, and walks of life. Join the conversation every weekend on All Things Considered from NPR News. Saturday and Sunday afternoons at 5 on WQLN Radio. Hi. This is Jeff Hanley, host of Jazz Happening Now. 
Each week we listen to some of the latest jazz recordings, and I think you'll be thrilled by what today's jazz musicians are doing and saying. The recording industry has changed, but the music is as alive and as vibrant as ever. The future of jazz is happening right now, if you just listen, and please do. Sunday night at 6 on WQLN Radio. Welcome to We Question and Learn. This is actually part two of the program uh, with Dr. Andrew Roth. We went through your resume, Dr. Roth. We're not going to do that again. We we found your your outline on a program series coming up that uh, you graciously called American Tapestry. You had a reason for calling it that. Uh, it was uh, significant of uh, a series where you paint a picture of American history from the 60s and our I, generation to today. Yeah, today. Well, we're using the metaphor of a tapestry in the American story to describe the stories of America in some ways mm-hmm. uh, in answering the question, what is the American story or is there an American story? Uh, I think the answer to that question is there probably is not one American story but there is a tapestry of interwoven stories or threads, and that the cumulative effect of that tapestry is the American story. Some of those threads are more important than others, uh, but all of them are required uh, to hold the tapestry together, for lack of a, a more elegant phrase. As you mentioned in the last half-hour interview. And by the way, by the time we uh, record this and broadcast this, folks can go back to the WQLN forward slash We Question site and listen to your uh, last broadcast. They can actually listen to your last We Question and Learn hour-long interview, which uh, alluded to all this, uh, which was a fascinating outline of a presentation that you did at the Chautauqua uh, Institution uh, a heritage lecture, and that was in July of 2019, right. as time goes by here. But uh, your outline, uh, the concept of a, of a tapestry, is that you're, you're telling a, a series of stories. People like that. People right. understand stories. They appreciate stories that apply to them, and you've related uh, how these historical interludes apply to our lives today. You must have heard one of my talks, because <laughs> when I talk about... Sometimes, uh, I'm sorry I missed a couple. I'm, we I'm, tell ourselves yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, first, uh, uh, the first episode of the actual series, that we'll, we'll dedicate 30, 40 minutes, whatever, to this topic is, uh, we're talking about American tapestry. We tell ourselves stories. And I think before we get into what those stories might be, we, we probably need to ask ourselves, what do we mean when we say we tell ourselves stories? As I said in our last episode, uh, I took that line directly. That's why in the printed material, it's always in quotes. It's the first line of Joan Didion's The White Album. We tell ourselves stories. And we might actually read, uh, as we will in the the larger episode, a little bit about uh, uh, the line from which that is taken. Uh, It's the very first paragraph of her book, uh, the, the The White Album. And which uh, Didion says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. The princess is caged in the consulate. The man with candy will lead the children into the sea. The naked woman on the ledge outside the window on the 16th floor is a victim of, I want to quote her correctly, is a victim of Akaday, or the naked woman is an exhibitionist. 
and it would be interesting to know which. We tell ourselves that it makes some difference whether the naked woman is about to commit a mortal sin or is about to register a political protest or is about to be, the Aristophanic view, snatched back to the human condition by the fireman in priest's clothing just visible in the window behind her, the one smiling at the telephoto lens. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of multiple choices. We live entirely by the imposition of narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. I think that's a wonderful paragraph, and, and she really gets at the innate human need to make sense of our experience, and we make sense of our experience by telling ourselves stories. And as you said a moment ago, the stories people love most are stories that are somehow about them, or maybe a little more generally, stories with which they can somehow identify. And we'll explore in that episode how the ability to tell stories may in fact be what defines us as humans. Um, evolutionary anthropologists uh, have themselves, their thinking has developed over the years. We, at one point in time, thought we were the creature that made tools, but we discovered that chimps make tools and other animals make tools. So Homo habilis, the tool maker, doesn't define us. We thought of ourselves, yeah, we have language, but we discover that other creatures have language. But what might define us is that we have perhaps, uh, and I don't want to give away too much of what that whole episode about is, we have perhaps, or at least as far as we know, we have the most sophisticated ability uh, to tell, to use language, and that's a result of a biological fluke that we stood up and walked erect, and we stood up and walked erect. Our larynx dropped into our thorax and enabled us to modulate air. We're on a radio station. We could explain that modulation to people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, most people aren't hearing this over the air, I suspect. This will be uh, so modulations no longer. I'm just giving away my age <laughs> in some ways. Um, but we'll talk at some length about what that means. But it's we are storytellers. We make sense of our experiences, Joan Didion said, by telling stories. And therefore, it's very important to know what stories we're telling. And to the extent we can verify, and that's really uh, a loaded statement, to, <laughs> to the extent we can verify, um, which stories to trust. As we hear these stories, they all coalesce into American history itself. And you've managed to find a way to tie some of the more prevalent and more important episodes of American history. But what fascinates me, you seem to have an insight and a knowledge of some episodes that I remember as if they were yesterday, but could not really understand why they happened. Um, you well, you have mentioned a couple of, uh, even some political campaigns, even some prevalent politicians that we all know. Uh, and boy, have we had some interesting stories as of late. But you... <laughs> you uh, you managed to interweave into these stories uh, your background and knowledge, and that's even in your preludes here, your introductions to what we're going to talk about. I've learned some different things. Um, 
Can I ask a personal question? How, how did you get interested in American history itself? And then second of all, how are you able to delve into the, do you have a technique? Is it just study? Is it just your fascination? Or, or let me compliment you, your incredible memory. That's, um, thank you, Tom. Um, I think it's fair enough to answer that question for our listeners. Sure. I mean, who am I? Um, and by, if we're going to verify. Well, you're telling the story. Validate. Yeah. Uh, why should they pay any attention to me? And so, you know, to the extent that uh, the fancy word in academia is vita. <laughs> yeah. What's my vita? Uh, what's my background? Well, I've got an interesting background for an academic, and some of my earliest colleagues might have found me to be an apostate. But uh, my undergraduate degree, I graduated from John Carroll University, and I had, uh, in effect, a double major in history and English literature. I'm mm -hmm. a member of both Lambda Iota Tau, which is the honorary, National Honorary Society in Literature, and Phi Alpha Theta, the National Honorary Society in History. Uh, John Carroll's a Jesuit university, and I always say I was educated by Jesuits, and it's a tremendous institution, mm -hmm. and I'm happy to give them a plug. Mm -hmm. But in the days when I went to John Carroll, all, <laughs> I graduated, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I graduated in 1968. That'll come back when we talk more specifically about that year. Yeah. So it's a year I have some interest in. Uh, but in those days, everyone was required to take 18 hours of philosophy and 12 hours of theology. And so I took an additional uh, six or nine. I'd have to go look at my transcripts to know exactly. But I took an additional six or nine hours in philosophy. Um, and I can't say that I triple majored. That would not be entirely accurate. But I came very close to having a triple major in history, English, and philosophy. And that was just by default, by the way in which the curriculum was structured in those days. I then uh, began the pursuit of a PhD in English at Case Western Reserve University. Yeah. And I got a master's degree. And then, because of the press of needing to earn an income, this, that, and the other thing, uh, I never actually finished the Ph.D. in English. I, I got a job as a faculty member at, at then Gannon College here in Erie uh, and began to work on the, the doctorate in English, and I was very interested in the history of 18th century literature, particularly in, Engl uh, in Britain, English. But I also, that lead led inexorably uh, and naturally to my interest in American history and American literature. Mm -hmm. But an interesting happen thing happened to me. Uh, back in the 70s, the academic market really was shriveling, but I simultaneously uh, became very interested in media and American studies and media studies. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I did a lot of work, yeah. uh, self-taught to a certain extent, and to a certain extent I have the, the challenge of the, the, the self-taught person, and the challenge of the self-taught person is they don't know what they don't know. Uh, uh, an education, uh, if it provides you nothing at all, it provides you this, at least, for if you're paying attention, it provides you a taxonomy, a matrix in which to put what you know, and then you're aware of the empty cells, yes. the things you need to learn. But yeah. perhaps if you're teaching yourself, you never really construct a taxonomy. Uh, but I got yes. deep into media studies. I was really involved very closely uh, uh, in the founding of WERG, the Gannon radio station, that was way back when, when uh, Dr. John Rao was the head of the English department, myself and some students, uh, uh, Mike Geringer and Greg Seabach immediately come to mind. Yeah. Uh, Tom McSweeney followed very shortly because yes. I moved to Mercyhurst. Yes. Uh, and then at Mercyhurst, I uh, taught uh, English and media, uh, interestingly enough, and I founded the Mercyhurst Communications Department. 
and I actually founded WMCE. And I was working on, uh, in, a, in an active youthful hubris, I was going to go to Carnegie Mellon and get a Master of Science in Mass Media. And in an active youthful hubris, I said, well, I don't want to do that. I already teach all these courses. <laughs> Uh, and that's true. I had, you know, developed all of these courses on my own. I mean, that's one of the, the Jesuits always said the purpose of an education was, was to teach you how to learn. And I hopefully uh, have been a good example that their philosophy of education works. Uh, I, I know how to go about it. And so I got deep into media. I founded the communications department. I taught communications. I mean, I taught everything from mass media and popular culture to the history of film to documentary video. I actually taught back in the days, uh, your engineer will find this amusing, of porta packs. And the porta pack yeah. was about two times as big. I'm pointing to a um, not even quite little sure, amplifier. A little <laughs> amplifier on the table here, and the porta pack was two or three times as big as that, and had reel-to-reel videotape. Yeah, suitcase. Uh, yeah, and it was a suitcase. Yeah. Uh, and as I was involved in all of that, I began to discover that the business of media was in fact business, in some ways. And so I went back to Gandon now as a student and got an MBA in marketing and strategic planning. Uh, and for many years then had an academic career. I, I left the faculty and I was uh, an administrator and uh, you, you ran through my, my vita in the earlier episode, but really quickly I was tenured as a faculty member in three departments, English, communications, and business. But also as an administrator, I was a director of admissions, dean of enrollment, vice president of enrollment, vice president of academic affairs, dean of the college. And then, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. uh, concluded that career uh, as the president of two institutions. And along the way in there, I got a Ph.D. in public policy and higher ed finance. So you might be asking yourself, how does all of this tie into this? Well, let's go back to my undergraduate degrees and my first master's degree. You don't have to scratch real deep to discover a liberal arts person who loves literature and history. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, uh, in my, my third or fourth career, whatever career this is, I'm returning to my roots. So one of the things I've, um, uh, and I have some very good friends who are you know, uh, much more formally trained historians than me, and I've talked with them about this, and I, I say, uh, at times, I, I, I say, what am I, you know, what am I uh, doing with this? So, for example, you mentioned the speech on, um, at the Chautauqua Heritage Lecture I did on American Tapestry on July 5th. Well, the, very, the, the day before, David Blight, who is the biographer of Frederick Douglass and one of the great historians of our time, gave a marvelous July 4th talk about Frederick Douglass. And I thought to myself, uh, a little bit of imposter syndrome perhaps creeping in, what am I doing? You know, I'm, I'm the next speaker. And as I read David Blight and Jill Lepore and Eric Foner, and I just go, go through the Rolodex, um, these people are more or less my contemporaries. And I said, I can't catch them if I wanted to because I look at their biblio, you know, their, their research. I mean, I literally, uh, I would run out of time. Um, and, but I had another career that was immensely successful. And so what I see as my role is, and I've talked with a number of people, is my role in some ways is returning to my roots, what I love, and being kind of, um, not an interpreter, but a facilitator of conversations about the work that these great scholars are doing, that we'll refer to them repeatedly in the series, hopefully um, be able to interview a number of them and gain yeah. their insights. Uh, and so I, my background, though, is... Uh, 
to be a, uh, to really get at the issue is uh, I'm I'm deeply read. I'm a readaholic. Uh, I do have all of the academic you know background, uh, but what I'm really uh, interested in is understanding where we are, and using. The one thing that I have that those folks don't have is I have this rather complex across the board. So if we want to talk about media, I can talk about media. If we want to talk about literature, I can talk about literature. If we want to talk about historiography, I can talk about historiography. If we want to talk about public policy, that's what my PhD's in, we can talk about public policy. If we want to talk about business and finance, we can talk about business and finance. Uh, and so it turns out that when the Jesuits all those years ago said the object of education isn't so much to, um, to stuff your head with facts, but it's to learn how to learn, and to learn how to learn macroscopically. Uh, I just made a gesture and we're on radio and a podcast, right. but you know, right. wide range. I think, um, and I can't say I set out to do this. This is, you know, <laughs> you know, life happens as it is. As it turns out, this is how my life unfolded. Uh, I bring to this discussion a wide, wide, wide range of knowledge and interests, um, and also the self-awareness uh, to challenge myself and to go and find the people who actually know this in great detail to check with them, either literally call them up on the phone, which I'm looking forward to doing, or to do a deep dive into their, their work. Uh, to check my sources. Uh, Jill Lepore, for example, has, I think, one of the, the best and most succinct uh, definitions of history. History is the art of making an argument about the past by telling a story accountable to evidence. And what I would like to think we'll be doing in this series is we'll be telling stories about history that are going to be accountable to evidence. So as we talk about American tapestry, we tell ourselves stories. We'll be exploring these things, but they're going to have to all be grounded and anchored in evidence, documented evidence uh, that can withstand, uh, to use a, a, a more down-to-earth line, and that's an esoteric academic line, that can withstand the light of day. I thought your resume, forgive me, it's much broader than a resume, your education, your outlook on life, so to speak, was important in uh, building a foundation underneath this program because um, there's a lot of folks that just read documents. They broadcast, so to speak, and, and I won't get you started on today's media, but uh, uh, the fascination uh, for public broadcasting to me is that you do have this depth of knowledge and this sense of reality, yet you'd like to replace each piece into an American story Yes, that people can understand so that when someone tunes into some topic in the program and will not have time to go through them all, but on a couple of these, if I'm looking at uh, your, your favorite is American music. Yes. And if you could um, tell us your thoughts about integrating American music into your history story. You really, What's your thought there? What's your thought? Well, there? music is, I, I, I actually think, and well, this will be, this will get a reaction, but maybe not anymore. It's probably not as controversial a state. It's not even a controversial statement. He just won the Nobel Prize in Literature a year or two ago. I think, for example, that the greatest poet of our generation, uh, although I'm a big Mary Oliver fan, and uh, Jack Gilbert, who's just died, uh, I think the greatest poet of our generation is probably Bob Dylan. 
And you can't really understand uh, contemporary America unless you understand contemporary Amer unless you understand American pop music. And perhaps all the way back into the 19th, even 18th century, but of course, the recorded music uh, is only the early 20th century to the present, although you have the sheet music, et cetera, from the past. Yep. Uh, but a lot of the pop music, if you want to use that phrase, from the past is gone. Um, and so to understand this era, and then when we get down to the age of rock and roll, uh, you really can't understand that music. So one of the episodes uh, we'll be looking at is Music, 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 and when we look at 1968, I think you can really get a, a glimpse, if you will, of the culture wars. And this could be the whole episode, Tom, or maybe even two. Just look at the Billboard Top 100 for 1968. And just by looking <laughs> at the Billboard Top 100 for 1968, yeah. Yeah. you get a flavor of the quote-unquote culture wars. Because you have everything on the Top 100 from the Mills Brothers, Herb Elpert and the Tijuana Brass, Bert Bacharach to uh, the 19th Street Fruit Gum Company, and I think I just butchered their name, but they're not important, but I'm talking about Bubblegum Rock, yeah. uh, to Cream, to Jimi Hendrix, to James Brown, yeah. uh, to the Buffalo Springfield. Uh, and so by just looking, and I'm working from memory right here, so yeah. I, I need, when we get to that episode, we'll have the Billboard 100, and hopefully we'll have the ability to do at least some snips uh, yes. of that music. But if you look at the music in the Billboard Top 100, it's like a window into the cultural stress of that era. And so you can't really understand that era without understanding the music. And if you want to understand the post baby, if you want to understand the baby boom generation and the post baby boom generations, you need to understand their music. You've just guaranteed thousands of uh, listeners to this program and hundreds of broadcasters who who uh, have lived that. It's part of their life. Bob yeah. Dylan was uh, a source of inspiration for. You know, both. people say that poetry yeah. uh, has died. Actually. This is the greatest era, arguably, in American literary history and poetry. There's more poetry being written, and because of the online, because of the web being, you know, published, if not literally, virtually published, than maybe ever. And as in anything, perhaps 90% of it, maybe even 95% of it, should have probably never escaped the drawer. You know, That's right. the, the old line about the amateur who writes for the drawer and writes for their own edification, which is wonderful. And, yeah. and, and there was a time when they didn't get past an editor, but now it's all over. But if you look at it now, there's just wonderful work being done. A lot of that work is done in academic circles, interestingly enough. Yes. I think the real work is, and it's a form of poetry, I mean, it's the lyric is the lyrics of pop music. And as George Will would say about the music of pop, uh, of rock and roll, he says it's a lot, of uh, a lot of bad music with pretentious lyrics. Well, I disagree with George Will, and yes, maybe we can call him up and have a discussion with him about that. In the early He's days gonna of He's going to be in Erie, by the way, uh, in sometime in late October, early November for the Global Summit. But 
as uh, you and I may not remember, in the early episodes of publishing, books came out in episodes and in magazines. Yes, so they were unfortunately, we're going to have to do this right now uh, in your presentation so that I hope we've left folks enough to come back and be interested and to, to hear more of this series. Dr. Andrew Roth, thank you for this episode. We appreciate it. Thank you, Tom.